Amen. Well, again, happy Easter. Thanks so much for joining us. For us, Easter really is the most important holiday there is. I know that Christmas tends to get more airtime in American culture, but Christmas really means nothing without Easter. As I mentioned at Southside, we typically go verse by verse through books of the Bible, and uh, we're currently working through the greatest letter ever written, Letter to the Romans. But this morning, we're going to take a break and look at the book of Acts. You'll need a Bible. If you don't have one, feel free to grab that pew Bible in front of us. It's page 871. And if you don't own a Bible, feel free to take that one with you. The book of Acts is where the Holy Spirit is poured out and the church grows. It's really a fascinating story. And we're going to pick up with the Apostle Paul preaching about Jesus and the resurrection at the Areopagus, also known as Mars Hill in Athens. Athens, if you know your history, it was one of the glories of ancient Greece, the foremost Greek city-state. It boasted of a very rich thinking tradition. Just think of Socrates or Plato or Aristotle. But as we're going to see, the Apostle Paul is not all that impressed. So we'll be in Acts chapter 17, page 871, if you're using one of our pew Bibles. We're going to focus on verses 22 to the end of the chapter, but for context, I want to start reading in Acts chapter 17, verse 16. Acts 17, 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? This word babbler usually referred to a little bird, a little seed picker. And so the idea was, who's this person that's just picking up various ideas and trying to make something work? What does this babbler wish to say? And others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities. And again, if you know your philosophical history, this is what Socrates was ultimately committed suicide because he was in trouble for. Because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. They probably thought this was two separate gods, one named Jesus and one named resurrection. Verse 19, and they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know therefore what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul standing in the midst of the Areopagus said, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it being Lord of heaven and earth does not live in temples made by man. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods in the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God. 
and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, yet he's actually not far from each of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even of some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he's given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you, and we are here laid bare before you and before your word, and we're asking and we're eager, God, would you please do a work in our hearts? We're here to celebrate your power and the goodness of your grace and the faithfulness of your promises, and if what this book says is true, we cannot leave here the same. So do a work, we ask, for the sake of Christ Jesus. We pray it in him and through him. Amen. Let's consider three truths from this passage. First, the spiritual landscape. Second, the one true God. And then third, what he demands. And so first, the spiritual landscape. Look with me again in Acts 17, verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you're very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. So Athens was super spiritual, in every way religious. And the word he uses here actually could be translated superstitious. The idea that they believed in all these gods and so they went around fearful, always trying to please and appease one of the gods. And so Paul's like, man, you're so pious, you're worshiping gods you don't even know. They just want to make sure they have all their bases covered, right? This is that Ricky Bobby religion. <laughs> Save me, Jesus. Help me, Allah. Help me, Jewish God. Save me, Oprah. Help me, Tom Cruise. Got to cover all of his bases just to be safe. It was a very spiritual, very religious place. And there's actually a good bit of overlap between first century Athens and America. Spirituality is actually on the rise to the chagrin of so many enlightenment-minded people that thought that as science continued to develop and technology would develop, that spirituality would go as a thing of the past. Well, they've been wrong. A few years ago, there was a major study by the Pew Research Center they published their findings in the Washington Post, and the, the, the title of the article tells you all you need to know. It says, the world is expected to become more religious, not less. Demographers are predicting that the 21st century will be less secular than the 20th. And so we in American culture, Western culture, and here in Athens, they're open to spiritual things, but they need direction about true spirituality which leads us to the second truth the one true God 
Look at verse 23. I passed along, saw the altar to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. So Paul says, you set up that little extra altar there. Let me fill in the details for you. And he tells us five truths about God. First, he's the creator of the world. We see that in verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, he does not live in temples made by man. He's the creator. This would have been in direct contradiction with both the Stoics and the Epicureans, those listening. The Stoics are basically pantheists. They believe that God was in everything. Epicureans were really what many in the West today are. They're evolutionists. Wouldn't they? Wouldn't call it that, but we would call it philosophical materialism. In other words, all there is is matter. Matter is all there is. All this world is is time plus matter plus chance. But nothing cannot produce something. Science itself knows of no chain of events without a beginning, and the beginning we know from Scripture is God, the Word of our Creator. If science is a big hang-up for you, we did a sermon last fall called Is Christianity Anti-Science? I would point you to where we show that the view of the world that science gives us actually is bankrupt. It just won't work. No, the world is the result of the word of the creator. And as the creator, he has all authority. As our creator, we are accountable to him. And as the creator of the cosmos, he does not live in man-made temples. Again, like all the false gods that would have been around. He cannot be contained. Flip over a few pages to Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7, here's Stephen, the disciple Stephen's last sermon. He's going to die right after the, he preaches this. But one of his points there is in verse 48. He makes the same point. Yet the Most High, Acts seven forty-eight, the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, and he quotes the Old Testament, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Just think of that imagery there. God is in the heavens and this earth is where he rests his feet. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? He can't be contained. And you can just see the Apostle Paul as he's sharing, waving his hand behind him at the Parthenon, that great architectural feat that stood majestically in the backgrounds. God created it all. He's the creator. And so man-made structures cannot contain him unlike your little gods, he says. So number one, he's the creator. Number two, he's self-sufficient. Look at verse 25. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. As though he needed anything. This God needs no thing. He's utterly unique. He's not a needy God. Again, the Stoics, they believe that the divine was dependent upon creation. Not this God, Paul says. We hear this refrain again and again and again in the Old Testament. There is none like you. 1 Samuel 2, 2, there's none holy like the Lord, for there's none beside you. There is no rock like our God. 2 Samuel seven twenty two. 
7.22, Therefore you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you, and there is no God beside you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. Psalm 86.8, There is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. The prophet Jeremiah, chapter 10, There is none like you, O Lord. You are great, your name is great in might. You get the point. He has no need. He has no shortage. He has no deficiency. The old theologians used to call this God's aseity. It's from two words in Latin, ase. God is from himself. In other words, he doesn't need anything else. He's self-sufficient. He's independent. He has all life and glory and goodness and blessedness in and of himself. He's not standing in need of any of his creatures which he's made. He is alone, the fountain of being. Here's how the end of Romans 11 puts it. Who has been his counselor? Or who has given him a gift that he might be repaid for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever and ever. Amen. He doesn't need us. He doesn't need you. He is not served by human hands. But here's the beauty of our God is he invites us in anyway. He's like that loving father who asks his curious toddler to come help him. And it takes him three times as long and it usually goes wrong. But he enjoys involving us. He doesn't need us, but he loves to include us. And we help him, and when we go to help and we go to serve, we can't even do it on our own. He doesn't need us, and so when we go to serve, we actually need his strength. That's what Peter says. He says, we serve by the strength that God supplies, not in our own strength, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Paul says he's not served by people. Because he's the one who gives everything. He himself gives to all life and breath and everything. He is the life giver. It comes from him. Our lives, friends, are on loan from him. I wonder, are we living our lives sold out to the one who gave us life? Our life is not our own. He's the one who gives us life. He gives breath, he says. He gives all to breath. We should be grateful to God for every single breath. He's the giver of life. He's the giver of breath. He says he's the giver of everything. Everything we receive comes from him. We are receivers. It is God who gives. And oh man, how grateful we should be instead of complaining and ungrateful for every single thing we have, for every single breath mentioned we're in the book of Romans and Romans 1 is a pretty dark picture of humanity outside of Christ. And there's this little phrase in there in Romans 121 and one of the problems, in fact, probably the fundamental problem of humanity, it says is we did not honor God as God or give thanks to him. Isn't that fascinating? The fundamental problem of mankind outside of Jesus Christ is we don't give him proper thanks. Because if we realize that everything, life, breath, and everything, everything we have is sheer, unadulterated gift, oh man, we would be spewing with gratitude and praise. Would we not? We are receivers. All is a gift. Every breath, every 
second. Every good gift, every sweet aroma, every warm embrace, every cup of coffee, every ice cream cone, everything. One of my favorite verses is 1 Corinthians 4, 7. What do you have that you did not receive? The answer to that, not a thing. What do you have that you did not receive? Then he rebukes us. Then why do you act? Why do you boast, he says, as if you did not receive it? So he's self-sufficient. He's independent. The third thing he tells, he's not only the creator of the world, he's the creator of mankind. That's in verse 26. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. So he created the world and he created us. We are more than matter in motion. Your life matters. You are made in the image of God. You have dignity by being human. And he says every nation came from one man. We learn from Genesis, that's Adam. Adam is the father of us all. By the way, footnote, one of the many reasons why racism is completely irrational and unbiblical. Every nation came from one father the church should be leading the way in racial reconciliation he's the creator of all fourth he's powerful he's sovereign it's there in verse 26 as well he says he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place He's determined when we would live, and he's determined where we live. Believe it or not, you live in Abilene, Texas, if you live here, by divine design. He marked out appointed times and the boundaries of our land. This is a sovereign God who's active in history. He reigns. He's not only sovereign, though. He's not only absolute. He's not only transcendent. He's near. Fifth, he's near. Look at verse 27. That they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he's actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we indeed are his offspring. He's come near. He's made himself known. He's both transcendent and personal, sovereign, yet fully engaged in the small details of our lives. Again, this would have been at odds with the Epicureans who believe that God was just impersonal, just distant, far away, having nothing to do with us. But this God comes near, and he comes near that we might seek him. And he quotes a couple Greek poets, Epimenides, and then the third century Stoic poet Eratus, and he wants to say he's near. We are his offspring. We are near to him. Which leads us then to our third point. What does he demand? Find this in verse 29. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. He says, don't think 
of this God like you think of your gods, metal or images or idols. No, 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 he's different. And now the times of ignorance are over. A new moment in world history is here. Here Paul finishes really where he began, right? With human ignorance. Back in verse 23, he started with what you don't know, let me proclaim to you. Let me make known. There's no longer an excuse. And there's no longer excuse in this room. Maybe this is the first time you've heard this. Now you know the times of ignorance are over and he commands all people everywhere to repent. This is a universal command, all people at all places. And to repent is merely to turn from sin to God. It's to drop your agenda and to take up his agenda. The word literally means to change your minds. Earlier in Acts, as Paul was preaching, here's how he preached. He told them to turn from these vain things to the living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. So to repent is to turn from vain things to the living God. And everything besides the Lord at the end of the day is vain, fleeting. Here's how 1 Thessalonians 1.9 puts it. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, to turn from idols. This is still the call, actually. Our idols are different than theirs. Our idols are a little more sophisticated than their idols, so we think. But an idol is anything we look to which only God can give. It's that thing we live for besides Jesus. And it can be all kinds of things. It can be fame, reputation, wealth, pleasure, food, drugs, parents, kids, leisure, material things, stuff. What is it you're living for? If it's not the Lord, ultimately it's an idol. And so we repent. We turn from seeking life in those things that are ultimately vain. We turn from centering our identity upon anything besides the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what repentance is. It's really the other side of faith, right? Because in faith, we turn from sin to the Lord. That's what repentance is. And maybe that's your call today. Maybe you're here and this command is for you for the first time to repent to turn from whatever you're living for and to turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. You can do that right where you are. If you do that, we want to hear from you. The next step is to go public. I'm with the Lord. And you do that through believer's baptism. We would love to talk more with you. But here's the thing. Repentance isn't just for your first step. Repentance is all of life. Repentance is not something we do just at the beginning of the Christian life. Repentance is the Christian life. We are constantly, as believers, turning from sin to the Lord. The difference between a Christian and a non-Christian is not the presence or absence of sin. Sin is the common denominator. The difference is Christians hate it and turn from it and go to war with it. It's not that we don't sin, it's that we're no longer okay with our sin. And then he gives us the reason. What's the reason for this universal command to, to repent? Look in verse 31. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he's given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Just like he's fixed our time, he's fixed our boundaries, 
He's fixed a day on which he will judge. None of us knows when it is. It might be today. Come, Lord Jesus. It might be 2,000 years from now. But it is fixed. He has set the day. And he's going to judge the world in righteousness, in justice. Justice will be had. As the Brits like to put it, the world will be put to rights. Most of us don't like to think about the judgment of God, but if you really stop and think about it, and especially for those of you who've suffered severely and in countries where suffering is the norm, to think of a world where there will be no justice, no recompense is actually a terrible thought. That the, the ugliest of sin will have no repercussion, will have no consequence. We actually don't want that. We actually do all long for justice, and God's going to bring it. He promises to you. The day is set, he says, when he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. The day hasn't been disclosed, but the judge has. And of course, it's Jesus Christ. If you still got Acts open, flip over to Acts chapter 10, verse 42. Acts 10, 42. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one, that is Jesus, appointed by God to be judge of the living and of the dead. God the Father has entrusted judgment to God the Son. Here's how Jesus himself puts it in the gospel according to John. Chapter 5, verse 26. He says, for as the Father has life in himself, that's that self-sufficiency, so he's granted the son also to have life in himself and he's given him the son authority to execute judgments because he is the son of man. Do not marvel at this for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who've done good to the resurrection of life and those who've done evil to the resurrection of judgments. This son will be the judge. And Easter ensures that. Acts 17, 31, he says, of this he's given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. We can be assured of this because of Easter, because of the empty tomb, because God raised Jesus from the dead. You can be sure that everything God has said will come to pass. You can take it to the bank. Easter proves the truthfulness of God and it proves the truthfulness of the gospel. The resurrection of Jesus is the central event in all of history. It is an epic changing event. It guarantees, this verse tells us, the certainty of a future universal judgment, a final act. It's really helpful to understand the way the Jews viewed resurrection. For them, it was an end times thing. For them, it was, the big word is eschatological. It was an end times thing. Just think of some of the prophecies that come to mind. They viewed resurrection as this future event that would come. And it would not be just some. It would be all of God's people. Let's think about the vision of Ezekiel in chapter 36 of the vision of the valley of dry bones. It's a resurrection passage where the spirit comes and raises those bones to life. That's the way they viewed it. It was when God would come back and restore them. What they did not expect was for one man to be raised from the dead in the middle of history. With Easter, with the resurrection of Jesus, 
We have God's future being brought in to the presence. We don't yet have the resurrection of all God's people, but we have the resurrection of one man. Easter brings God's future into the present. Easter brings about, inaugurates a new stage in God's plan where the future is now, the new age, the new covenant, the new creation. With the rolling away of that stone from the grave, the foundation stone of the new creation is set in place. A new moment in world history. It's now here. This resurrection is the fulcrum around which the world turns, the central event in human history, the turning point of the ages. And friends, we have every reason to believe that this actually happened. We have every reason to believe in the historicity of this magnificent event. The resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth has as much historical attestation as any other ancient historical event. So much we could say. Let me just mention four. Number one, the empty tomb. The tomb was empty. There was no body. They would have found it. They were highly motivated to find that body. And remember, sometimes there's various theories and goofiness talked about to try to explain it away. Let's remember that Rome majored in crucifixion. They did thousands of crucifixions every year. It's what they did. They were well-crafted in death. He died and he was no longer in that tomb. The second thing is the eyewitnesses. There were eyewitnesses, and the New Testament again and again and again mentions these eyewitnesses by name. In fact, 1 Corinthians 15, probably the greatest resurrection chapter in the New Testament, says there were over 500, and they weren't just the disciples, obviously. And so he mentions them because they can be consulted. The letter to the Corinth was written about 15 years after the resurrection happened, many of whom, Paul says, many are still alive. Go ask them. Go interview them. There were eyewitnesses. The third thing, though, again, if this was fabricated, you wouldn't have fabricated it the way they did. This is not a made-up story. For one, those first witnesses, those first eyewitnesses, according to the Gospels, were women. Now, we probably think, well, no big deal. But in that day, that was a big deal because the testimony of women could not be credible evidence in a court of law in the first century. It was dismissed. And so if you're making this thing up, you don't have women as your first eyewitnesses. You have your leaders. You have the men. But they didn't care about looking credible. They cared about the truth of how it happened. And so the eyewitnesses and the eyewitnesses, the fact that they were females, but then forth, the impact on the disciples. If we read the gospel, something changed, right? Just think about Peter. Peter became a coward. He denied his Lord three times, one of them to a little girl, teenage girl. They were all despondent, depressed, discouraged, and then something happened. And they were totally different. And they gave their life for their Lord. What happened was they saw the risen Christ. They encountered their risen king. Also, not just the disciples, though, but think about the expansion and explosion of the Christian church. What else explains the explosion of the church? Especially those first 300 years under the thumb of persecution besides of resilience because they knew that their founder had walked through the gates of death. We have every reason to believe that this is historical. Friends, Jesus is risen and it changes everything, or at least it should. Look at verse 32. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, 
Some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. And so Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed. Among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. Some mocked. Some were interested. Only a few believe. Which really shouldn't be that surprising. Jesus told us that the way is narrow and few there be that find it. Here Paul names, or Luke names, a lady named Damaris. And this guy named Dionysius who was an Areopia guide. And the ancient historian Eusebius would later tell us that this guy here, Dionysius, was actually the first pastor of Athens. And then a few years later, their first martyr. He died for this resurrected Lord. And so I wonder, where do you land this morning? You're one of those that mocks? You interested in learning more? Or are you believing? You must land somewhere. The times of ignorance are over. Now you know. Now you must respond. God has been so gracious to every one of you. Gracious enough to draw you in and have you here under his word, inviting you to turn, to repent from vain things and turn to the giver of life. Again, you can do that right where you are. You don't have to move a muscle. You believe with your heart that Jesus is Lord and you will be saved. If you do that, we want to hear from you. Come tell us. Easter changes everything. How bizarre is it to celebrate this morning the resurrection of the world's true Lord and go back to the status quo on Monday morning. If this is true, everything must change. You know, we think of Easter, we think of various things. We think of rabbits, we think of chocolates, think of pastel. Y'all look really pretty this morning, by the way. But Easter really is about death the overcoming of death, overcoming the problem of death. Hebrews chapter 2 says that all people are enslaved by the fear of death. And I think we know that's true. That's why we never think about it, never talk about it, try to put it away. We've got a lot of technology and hospice care, so we don't have to see it because we're fearful. You think about all the various fears in the world. I'm scared of snakes. Well, why? It might bite me and I might die. Scared of heights because I might fall and I might die. I'm scared of flying because I might crash and I might die. Most people are doing all they can to fight death, whether it's just ignoring it, maybe it's busying ourselves. We try hard, man. We do surgeries. We eat healthy. We work out. We take our vitamins. We use our anti-aging cream. We color our hair. That's all good. But friends, I'd hate to be the bearer of bad news on Easter morning, but exercising a lot and eating kale will not save you from the grave. Life is a mist. And I submit we really can't live like we're called to live if we don't live with life as a mist. I wonder, have you reckoned? Have you grappled with your own mortality? A recent book I was reading had this thought experiment and said that every one of you, you're going to have kids one day, Lord willing, if you're a family. And Lord willing, those kids will have kids. And Lord willing, those kids will have kids. And so one day your kids will have grandkids. Lord willing, your kids will have grandkids and I bet that your child, their grandparents will be really influential in their life as most grandparents are. 
They're going to love your child, their grandma or grandpa. But you know what? They're not going to know you at all. Maybe they'll know a shell of you, but they won't know your interests. They won't know your personality. They won't know your legacy. They won't know your accomplishments. Most of your children's grandchildren won't even know your name. Forgotten in less than 100 years. Happy Easter. (laughs) But this, friends, is what Easter is about. This is what Christianity is all about. I love how the sociologist Peter Berger says, he says this about the purpose of religion. He says, the power of religion depends in the last resort upon the credibility of the banners it puts in the hands of men as they stand before death or more accurately as they walk inevitably toward it. Let me say that again. The power of religion depends in the last resort upon the credibility of the banners it puts in the hands of men as they stand before death or more accurately as they walk inevitably toward it. Brothers and sisters in Christ, guests, Christianity has powerful banners to put in your hands that are as credible as the tomb is empty. Easter is about resurrection. Easter is about the end of death. Easter is about the gift of eternal life. God raised his son from the grave and he will do the same for every one of his followers. That's why the Bible calls Jesus the firstborn from the dead. There will be a secondborn and a thirdborn and a fourthborn and a fifthborn into the millions. That's why he's called the first fruits of the resurrection. You farmers know those first fruits that come from the harvest tell you there's more coming. Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. He is the first fruit of the resurrection. This is why this is so important. This is why the historicity of the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ is so important. It is our main thing. This is what makes us unique. It's what makes Jesus unique. If Jesus was not raised from the dead, then totally dismiss everything he said. But if he was raised from the dead, then we must accept and submit to everything he said. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says much the same in verse 14. He says, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. If there's no Easter, there's no point in any of it. Verse 15, we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who also have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all pity, all people most to be pitied. If we're only got this life, we are, we're idiots. We're of all people most to be pitied if this is not true. The historian Jaroslav Pelagon said, if Christ is risen, nothing else matters. If Christ is not risen, nothing else matters. But I stopped reading too short. 1 Corinthians 15, 20 says, but in fact, 
Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits. Everything must change. All people everywhere must repent, must drop their own agenda and orient their lives around his. C.S. Lewis has famously called us to reckon with this Christ in one of three ways. Either he's a liar or he's a lunatic or he is the Lord. Either he's a liar, just went around making stuff up because he said a lot of things that are just pure lies if this isn't true. Or he's crazy. He's a lunatic. Like, listen to what he says. Here's what Jesus says. He tells people, fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades. Mere teachers, they don't teach that sort of stuff. That sort of stuff's not wise teaching. That's lunacy if it's not true. So is he a liar? Is he a lunatic? Or on that third day, those stiff muscles begin to twitch. That heart began to beat. His buried body began to breathe. The blood began to flow. And blood-crusted eyelids are opened. And that man really did sit up, stand up, and walk out that tomb. Out of the silence, the king declares, the grave has no claim on me. He's not just another religious leader. This makes him utterly unique. This king must be reckoned with. Buddha, dead. Confucius, dead. Lao Tzu, dead. Muhammad, dead. Joseph Smith, dead. Jesus Christ, risen from the grave. He's utterly unique in his claims, in his persons, in his feet. He is the last Adam. He is the offspring of Abraham. He will bring blessing to not just the Jewish people, but the nations. He's our great high priest, the prophet like Moses. He's the king of kings, the son of David, the suffering servant, the Lord of lords, the judge, the beginning, the end, the alpha, the omega. He's the point of existence. He didn't just survive the grave, friends. He conquered the grave. Low in the grave he lay, up from the grave he arose. He holds now the keys of death and hell, and he shares them with all of those who follow him. The good news of Easter is that death couldn't hold him. You can't keep a God-man down. And the good news for us is that death won't hold us. If we trust in Christ, death is not a period. Death is a comma. Your greatest enemy is death. And if you trust in Christ, your greatest enemy has been defeated by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Death has been arrested because of the victory of Jesus. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And then he says, do you believe that promise? That's why for believers in Jesus Christ, the New Testament doesn't even call it death for us. It calls us sleep. For those in Christ, we don't die, we just take a nap. It's assuming there's an arising, an awakening on the other side. Because the tomb is empty now, we can even mock death. That which everything else and everyone else fears, we can... Say, oh, death, 
you're swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ.